Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're going to be having an entrepreneur that is going to be teaching us a lot about product market fit. You know what worked, what didn't work, scaling companies. Uh, I mean, they've raised uh, quite a bit of money too. They have quite a bit of of employees. So I think that talking about culture is also going to be very interesting with our guest. But I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Peter Reinhardt. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So originally born and raised there in in Seattle. So uh, so how was life there? Hi, uh, it was great. You know, it uh, it rains a lot in Seattle, so I kind of grew up with this uh, idea that it being gray outside was normal. And uh, it's actually a little too sunny here in San Francisco for me now. Very cool, very cool. And and your father was a carpenter, and then also your mom was an art teacher. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, so my dad had basically his own business in, in terms of uh, sort of a, a small scale contractor, um, learned a bit from, from seeing that in action. Um, but yeah, in, in, uh, in high school, the sort of first entrepreneurial thing that I got myself into was uh, starting a high school underground newspaper called The Watchdog. Uh, and it ended up sort of competing with the official high school newspapers. So that was a lot of fun. We raised a little bit of money from the tennis coach, a few hundred dollars a month to, to print the thing on paper and distribute it around the school. Very cool. So that was the, what was the lesson that you got from that? Uh, I think it was learning a little bit how to, how to raise money actually, uh, for something that myself and some of my friends were passionate about. It wasn't a lot of money, but we felt like it was a big ask at the time for a couple hundred bucks a month to go to Kinko's and, and, uh, hit copy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then how, how did you develop this love for, for aerospace? So I guess I was always really excited about uh, aircraft and I was always studying different rocket designs and reading about the missions to the moon and what was going on on Mars and so forth. I was just always super excited about that. I loved the book Ender's Game. Um, and uh, yeah, so then I went off to to MIT and started studying aerospace engineering there. And it's actually another experience there where I, I convinced the uh, department head to give me, I don't know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks to go develop a, a uh, unmanned autonomous vehicle, uh, which was really just like a balsa wood contraption that could sort of fly by itself across the MIT gym. Wow. Uh, but that, that was fun. Yeah, no, it sounds, sounds like fun. And then what happened with your, with your roommates? Yeah. So in our, in our junior year, 
I think we started to recognize myself and my roommate started to recognize that we really uh, wanted to start a company together. And we had started reading a lot of Paul Graham's essays on uh, in and around Y Combinator and Hacker News. We started getting really excited about that. So at the end of our junior year, uh, we uh, dropped out, applied to Y Combinator, got in, and we decided to build a classroom lecture tool. And the idea was to give students this button to push to say, I'm confused. And the professor would see this graph over time of how confused their students were. So they could match this up with their lecture and figure out how they could improve the lecture and, and make it easier for students to understand and so forth. And we were really excited about this. We had a bunch of professors at, at MIT who were excited about it and um, built all this stuff over the summer of Y Combinator and uh, wrote all this code. It was crazy. Hundreds of thousands of lines of code trying to make this really overcomplicated classroom lecture tool. Uh, we raised a bit of money coming out of uh, demo day for Y Combinator, about 600K, and then we deployed it into the classroom, and it was just a total disaster. So as the fall semester started, all these students were opening their laptops using our new tool, uh, except that they weren't actually using the tool. They were actually just opening their laptops and going straight to Facebook and Twitter and Flickr and Gmail and, and so on. So it was an incredibly distracting thing that we had mistakenly deployed into all these classrooms. So then what happened next? So we had just raised this money about two weeks before we deployed it. Uh, so we had to call back all the investors and uh, basically say, hey, like this thing you just invested in, like, I'm really sorry, but it turns out it's a terrible idea. Uh, like, what do, you, what do you want us to do with the money? And uh, almost all of them, a couple took their money back, but the rest of them said, hey, you know, we really invested for the team. So, uh, you know, we believe in you guys. Go, go figure out something else and, um, you know, work on that. Wow. So we thought a little bit over the next month or so and decided, hey, you know, we really should have been able to figure out that this tool wasn't working during our summer test sessions. And we should have been able to figure it out by looking at our web analytics. We shouldn't have had to, you know, we actually stood in the back of classrooms and counted screens to figure out what people are doing. We're like, we should have been able to figure out analytically from the data that this wasn't working during our summer tests. And so we thought, okay, we're going to build an analytics tool, like a web analytics tool to compete with um, Google Analytics or Mixpanel or Kissmetrics or Adobe Analytics. And so we started doing a little bit of research on that. We started building a ton of infrastructure. And we basically spent the next year building out various variations of, of uh, that product and uh, frankly, not spending much time talking with customers. We really spent all our time sort of just iterating on the product, trying to build something that we thought people might find really exciting. Uh, and after a year of working on that, we had burnt down to maybe like 100K left, on the, left in the bank. And so we really didn't have that much cash left. Uh, we still had no paying customers. Uh, and we really were just clearly failing to find product market fit. We were really cl clearly failing on the sort of customer sales side of things. Uh, and we're just spending all of our time building, building, building. Uh, so it's pretty, uh, the end of that year and a half was, was pretty dark where we just didn't have, uh, we didn't have traction, we were burning cash and, and we hadn't found product market fit in any sort of meaningful way. So then obviously, you know, you eventually you have to put this out there. So, um, so what happened when you finally put this out there? You know, once again, you know, another product, you know, like what was, what, what happened there? Yeah, well, honestly, we, we kept trying to put out this analytics product and we kept getting crickets. And uh, it turns out the analytics space is just incredibly crowded. There's dozens and dozens and dozens or even hundreds of, of analytics companies. Really difficult to differentiate and, and sort of build a compelling product. 
And so we got to December 2012 and realized that this analytics tool was not like it wasn't a good market and we didn't have a great idea for our product there. So again, we're a year and a half in, we've got 100K left in the bank. We realized we sort of have one more shot at product market fit for something. Um, and sort of pause there and rewind back to the very first week of Y Combinator a year and a half earlier. And we were like, well, you know, we should put analytics on our classroom lecture tool. And so we Googled analytics tools and we found Google Analytics, Mixpanel, and Kissmetrics. But we couldn't figure out which of those analytics tools was actually good or was the right fit for us. And so we built this little 50-line piece of code that could basically send data from our classroom lecture tool out to all three of those tools and basically would let us figure out which tool was better later on. So just a little like data piping uh, JavaScript library. Got it. And uh, over time, over the next year and a half, we sort of cleaned up that library a little bit, cleaned it up a little bit more. Eventually, we open sourced it. And we started using it as a growth hack. So we added it uh, ourselves as the fourth analytics service that it could send to, because by that time, we were building this analytics tool. And people started picking up this open source library. They started picking it up and saying, hey, like this is, this is great. I'd love to use this to send data to Google Analytics and Mixpanel. And we're like, well, we'd love it if you would just turn on our tool and send data to us too. And they're like, nah, I'm pretty happy with Google Analytics and Mixpanel. And so over the course of the months leading up to December 2012, we started to notice that this little open source library was getting traction. Like People were using it to solve their data routing problem to send data to their analytics tools. And so finally, we get to this moment, we realize our analytics tool has failed. Uh, we have the 100K left in the bank. And my co-founder, Ian, is like, you know what? I think for our last shot here, I think there might be a big idea behind Analytics.js, this little open source library. Like, I think there might be a big business in, in this open source library. And I was like, that is literally the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> it's 500 lines of code. It's already open source. I, I do not understand how this is a big idea. So we had a huge fight uh, as all four co-founders. And uh, I went home and was like racking my brains trying to figure out how to kill this idea. And eventually figured it out, came in the next day and was like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a beautiful landing page. It's like really going to pitch the value of Analytics.js. And we'll post it up to Hacker News and we'll see what the developer community thinks of it. And this will be like a fair test of whether this thing has product market fit or not. And I was thinking this would just totally kill it. And uh, so we, we did that. We built the landing page and posted it up on Hacker News. And much to my surprise, it basically went straight to the top of Hacker News, got hundreds of upvotes, got thousands of email signups, thousands of stars on GitHub. We had people reaching out to us on LinkedIn demanding access to uh, the beta version of this product, the hosted beta version of this product, which, did, which didn't exist at the time that we launched it. Uh, and so the whole thing just sort of blew up on, on us in a good way over the span of about uh, 24 hours. Wow, what a difference from building on assumptions to all of a sudden you put this thing and you start having, you know, good data and, and good validation. So then I guess, you know, you you finally, I mean, I'm sure that this was like a big breakthrough from you guys, like really understanding, you know, like the value of being able to listen uh, to your target audience. So then once you really got this big breakthrough, what, what were some of the next steps to be able to actually deliver on your promise? Yeah, I think the, the learning that we took away from that sort of year and a half of two failures and then one accidental success was that for the first two ideas, we always had sort of this big grand vision 
of like how we thought the world should work, right? Like, oh, the world should work, like classrooms should be digitized and like, you know, people should have all these great feedback loops and, um, or like, oh, the future of analytics looks like this. So it was always this like inside out kind of view of how the world should work. And I think the like tough learning uh, or humbling learning there was like the world kind of doesn't care what you think, right? Like the, the world has some set of problems. And if you're not solving those problems, then it really doesn't care you know, what, how you think it should work. Um, and that third idea where we actually said, Hey, like, we don't know if this is like a big grand vision, but it seems like it's solving a problem for people. Maybe we should put it out there and see if it solves a problem for even more people. Yeah. turns out it solves a big problem for people. So I think that it was sort of this reversal from like an inside out view, vision driven view of the world to a outside in like what problems does the world have and can we just start solving those problems and so once we took on that mentality post this open source library product market fit it was really obvious because there were so many people who were excited about this thing and the problem that it solved that they were giving us all kinds of feedback about their other problems they're like oh well it's great that you send data to my analytics tools but can you also send data to my email marketing tools can you also send data to my advertising tools? Can you also send data to my data warehouse? Can you load data not just from my website, but from my mobile apps and so on and so on and so on? And so once we had found one problem, people sort of uh, were willing to, to dump all their other problems uh, on, onto us as well. And so it, it was pretty straightforward from there on, at least relatively speaking, to uh, build more and more of a product that really solved a deep problem for people around how they manage their customer data. And I guess you had a... You had a very good problem. I mean, obviously, explosive product market fit, but also it's it's tricky, you know, because now you're getting like all these different people, this different feedback, this different requests. How are you able to really filter through that to be able to really focus and prioritize what really matters on on the roadmap in front of you? Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think we did a good job of this at first. We actually built a lot of stuff that ended up not being useful. Like we built a dashboard for investors because we wanted the investors to distribute the tool to their startups and so on. Uh, and that ended up not being useful at all. Um, I guess the, the thing that worked initially was we, it was okay to build a lot of stuff and kill a lot of stuff as long as you actually kill a lot of stuff. And then over time, as the stakes have gotten higher, we've gotten better at figuring out uh, how to determine whether something is really going to move the needle, which surprisingly, that actually didn't come from learning more about product management. It ended up coming more from learning how the sales process works. Um, and sales is not something that I had a ton of appreciation for when we, when we started the company, but I think over time is something that I've developed more and more appreciation for. The, what, we, what we really learned is that the, the process of figuring out whether a product is going to have product market fit pre-launch is very, very similar to the process of testing for qualification in the sales process. So if you're familiar with MedPick, where you know, you're searching for an economic buyer who has a, uh, has a pain point, a, a champion, uh, you're searching for the economic impact of what the problem is for them and what the solution therefore might deliver in terms of economic impact. So getting really, really clear with the customer about the exact explicit problem that they have and the economic pain that it's creating for them and then how your product is explicitly going to solve that economic pain. You can actually do a lot of discovery, is what it's called in sales, to, to go learn those things um, and really test whether a product is, is going to deliver economic value. And if it is, then at least in the B2B world, 
of selling you know software to businesses other businesses uh, i think you can do a lot of good product market fit testing uh, with relatively few conversations got it and and obviously it took you guys you know once you started on the execution of this and you got this great feedback it took a little bit of time until finally you got the the series a in place but i mean quite a quite a series a and um, from really, you know, uh, top tier guys. So, so tell us about how you guys went about the the fundraising process as well. So, about six months after we launched the open source library, we had a good bit of free traction. Uh, so, a bunch of customers just using the product for free, um, but we still had no revenue. And so, we we went out and raised uh, a two million dollar sort of seed extension round from Kleiner Perkins and Eventures based on the traction that we were having. Um, the sort of customer reviews, but not based on revenue. Uh, and then about a year later, we crossed 1 million in revenue uh, and we were growing super fast. Like we basically in the six months leading up to the Series A had gone from zero to a million in revenue. Um, we're, we were on track to end that year at 2.5. So it was going to be a really fast growth year. Um, and that was when we raised the 15 million uh, from Excel uh, for our Series A. Um, the I guess the the biggest learning that I had was the importance of getting to know investors before you actually go out to fundraise. Um, so meeting folks, sharing your strategy, sharing why, helping them understand why customers care about this thing, what the economic value is to them, giving them a, a, a moment in time where they understand what the product is and how you think about things so that you're not trying to cram all of that into a very, very short fundraising period. Uh, and I think if you if you give investors sort of like a, a preview of that, say six, nine months before you actually go fundraise, then when you go fundraise, it's more a discussion of numbers and strategy. They're already sold on you. They've seen the progress over six to nine months. Uh, and so that style of fundraising where you get to know folks quite a ways before you actually uh, ask them for money, I think is is something that we've we've carried forward from Series A to the B to the C to the D. Um, Got it. And I guess the... Um... Peter, there are probably the people that are that are listening. You know, they're probably wondering, like, how the hell do I do I get the attention, let's say, from an investor? Because I mean, obviously, investors are are in the game of investing. You know, and they they meet it with entrepreneurs to invest. So, how can they position, let's say, scheduling that meeting and and perhaps keeping the fundraising conversation in the background so that they can really uh, target the, the discussion more towards the seeking advice and then obviously, you know, later on getting the money twice. Uh, but really making sure that that you know it's really not going into into that direction yet. Yeah, so investors are in the business of making good investments, not just investing. Uh, and I, I think what that means is that they really want to figure out which investments are actually going to be good. They get they get relatively few, especially in venture, they get very few chips to place, and they want to make those chips well-placed. And when someone is running a really like fast fundraising process with a whole bunch of people and it's the first time they're meeting them, it's really hard for them to assess the person. It's really hard for them to assess the strategy with a clear head. It's really hard for them to go understand the broader space. They don't have time to talk to customers. In other words, it's really hard to do the proper diligence to figure out whether it's a good opportunity. And so I think investors are actually quite aligned with wanting to get to know folks six to nine months before they're actually in the throes of a fundraise process. So I've never found, uh, I've never found misalignment with an investor where they're like, Oh, well, I don't, I don't want to talk to you if you're not fundraising. They're like, Oh, great. I would love to get to know you and like understand this business prior to being under pressure to make a decision. Got it. Is there any, a specific strategy, for example, that you used in order to really get in front of, 
of those investors uh, because obviously getting that social proof and and the right type of introduction is critical. Uh, so how how did you go about that? Yeah, getting the right introduction is really critical. I think this is the the hardest thing is breaking into the network for the first time, and then once you break in, then it's fairly easy to navigate the network through introductions. Uh, and for us, Y Combinator was that key sort of foot into the um, in in the door into the network of of Silicon Valley um, and the sort of investor scene because you in- meet so many investors all at once. YC obviously has connections, so um, that that I don't know how useful it is, but that was that was frankly our strategy was uh, use Y Combinator as a as a springboard into that got it uh, into that community so basically maybe getting a connector and then with that connector you just leverage it's kind of like a snowball effect kind of thing yep very cool exactly. and in your case how much capital have you guys raised for segment uh we've raised uh, a bit shy of 300 million in capital over the last uh, seven years very nice so i guess uh, what's that transition let's say from early stage to growth stage you know where you guys are at what does that look like yeah i guess the um well, one one interesting thing that people always said that I, I have not found to be true. People always said that oh, around Series B is really when it stops being about the vision and it starts being about the, just the numbers. And then I didn't find that to be the case in our Series B fundraise. And then around the Series C, people were like, oh, well, Series C is it's really all about numbers at that point. And like the numbers are important, but I, I still found that it was heavily all still about the vision. Um, and and so I guess the uh, I think oftentimes people maybe go a little bit too down the rabbit hole of thinking that like it's just numbers, numbers, numbers after like Series A. But I actually think for the for the really big companies that are sort of unlocking their way into bigger and bigger sequential markets, like the vision and and how you're building into that from a product roadmap perspective and everything is still super super important. Um, that said, I do think the founders or founder CEOs' attention shifts dramatically post product market fit and i think i was a little bit slow to make this transition from the search for product market fit to really go to market strategy and i think over our growth trajectory we've been uh graced with sort of lots of inbound uh business lots of word of mouth in our customer growth and so we haven't we were never challenged to go and figure out uh, deeply, who is the customer? How do we get in touch with them? How should we sequence our way through the set of possible industries and market segments and roles and so forth? Um, and so that I think for us is the is the big transition that we're going through now, which is how do we really figure out the go to market strategy and details of who we go after, when, where, why, and why are they so compelled and interested in the in the product that we offer, and how do we communicate that to them? So I think that transition from being a, a product-focused founder CEO to being a go-to-market-focused uh, founder CEO is maybe one of the ways to define the transition from uh, sort of early stage to growth stage. Makes sense. And for you guys, the first four years were obviously the, the most challenging and full of uh, you know situations, especially you know two of them, a couple of them that were near-death experiences. One of them. In particular, uh, in particular, was when you experienced the growth rate that slowed a little bit, and that happened in 2015. So, so tell us about what happened and and how did you guys overcome that challenge? Yeah, the uh, so our sort of growth trajectory over the first few years was basically zero to two and a half million ARR, and then two and a half to ten, and then uh, ten to twenty, 
And in that year where we went from 10 to 20, we had a real big scare. So the first half of the year, we went from 10 to 12 and a half, uh, which just scared the bejesus out of us. It was like not at all the growth trajectory that we wanted to be on. And uh, what really happened was that we had a pricing and packaging problem. So we had customers, we had packaged separately uh, two different parts of our product and and basically people were churning off of one of the packages onto the other because there was a cheaper way that they could make things work uh, by also bringing in a, a third party tool. Uh, and that was a disaster for us. So our churn rate spiked in the first half of that year. And so we made a pricing and packaging change that basically rolled the two separate packages into a single package and then changed our self-service pricing relative to our uh, sales list price for larger contracts and basically completely transformed the the go-to-market motion for us, completely transformed uh, the price points that customers were willing to pay and basically eliminated the churn problem for us overnight. Uh, and so that was a really transformational pricing change. And I, I think actually most product-focused founders uh, miss huge opportunities in pricing and packaging, which I think we had a big success there, but I think we have also massively underinvested in pricing and packaging and uh, aligning pricing and packaging to how customers actually want to buy, uh, I think is, is critically important. So, um, you know, yeah, 2016 for us was really rescued by uh, pricing and packaging. So then, for example, like in this case and and perhaps in other situations of the business, how do you go about, obviously, first identifying the problem? I mean, you you had all these lessons from from not listening to customers to then being hyper focused on on really you know that data and, and listening to your customers to really be able to to execute but how do you go about first identifying the problem then finding a solution and then executing on it you know really as a whole when it comes to strategy and execution for segment uh, i read somewhere recently this this concept of sort of two uh, two ways of responding to problems there are people who, when they see a problem, kind of tend to shy away from it and be like, oh, like, you know, I don't really want to deal with the problem. And it may be totally subconscious. And then there's a separate sort of mentality you can take, which is like, as soon as you see a problem, you go 10x deep directly as hard as you possibly can at the problem until the problem doesn't exist anymore. And I feel like over the first four years, I got, or we got burned too many times by not charging hard directly at whatever the problem was that we saw. Uh, and so the concept of ignoring the problem or even feeling like we were ignoring the problem kind of got beaten out of us uh, by each other um, as co-founders. And so uh, I think if, if that's a piece of advice that I could go back and give myself, it would be to just run straight at the problem. You, you probably see the problem. You're probably just uh, avoidant of it. And uh, I think if you just run straight at the problem and really dig as deep as you possibly can into the problem, gather all the data that you possibly can, talk to as many people as you possibly can, the solution is probably not actually that hard. It's often just the mental barrier of getting over actually realizing that there's a problem that needs to be solved and how much effort is going to have to go in to solve it. Got it. And and going back to the um, to the discussion on on growth, I mean, you guys have experienced quite a, a significant amount of growth as well on the on the employee side of things, uh, I mean, I think that in the in the last uh, year or so, like uh, in the last couple of years, like over a hundred percent growth in terms of the number of employees. I think that you have something around, you know, over five hundred employees. So I guess 
How do you go about, you know, really scaling the team? How do you go about embracing culture? And what are some of the key lessons there to perhaps that you could share with the people listening? Yeah, I think from the from the founder perspective, the only way to really scale the team is to hire really strong uh, senior executives who then have their own capability and their own network to go hire and and, and recruit aggressively. Um, the best trick that I've found for executive recruiting, uh, which has made a huge difference for me, is batching my own recruiting process. So what I mean by that is rather than meeting one exec candidate one week or two candidates the next week and then one candidate the next week and three candidates the next week. What I try to do is bunch the candidates up so that I meet, let's call it three candidates in a day for three days in a row. And it's really, it's hard. So you sort of have to delay the early ones and pull forward the, the late ones. But what happens is you get like a much better comparative sense for the relative strengths of the candidates because you still have a very fresh memory of each of them. And that then results in being able to make, I think, a much better decision and also uh, a decision with much higher conviction about which exec is the is the right one for, for your company. Um, and then I think when you get those right execs, then they can build out whole teams. Um, so I think that in terms of like growth and, and recruiting and bringing people into the company, I, I think that for me has been a, a big unlock. Um, the other obviously is, is just scaling culture. And it, I think Companies change significantly in terms of how they feel socially, which is fine. That that needs to happen. But what shouldn't change is there should be some set of values that are literally the things that you value that that shouldn't change if it's the things that you value. And uh, so I think we've always find ourselves having to put way more effort into that than, than we think is, is necessary and it always pays back in spades to just reinforce our four company values again and again and again in as many different places as we can in the interview process, in the welcome package for onboarding, in the performance review, uh, at all hands every two weeks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that pays back in spades as people then operate on the same operating system of, of what everyone values inside the company. Very nice. And, and I guess, you know, the, um, when you're, for example, like meeting with execs and, and recruiting these people, you know, especially people that, you know, that, that, that are a good fit with, with your culture. I mean, is there like a specific thing that is an absolute must for you on every candidate? Uh, I have four things, uh, and they're basically map exactly to our values. Our first value is karma, which is basically earning trust and giving back to our customers, uh, partners, and, and the whole community uh, around us. And so I'm, I'm really especially in customer facing execs, but really across the board, like, do they have a deep empathy and understanding for customers? Like in their prior roles, have they shown that they really want to understand the customer and that they will go over and, and, and beyond for the customer and, and the broader communities around, around their uh, companies previously. Second value for us is, is tribe, uh, which is really that we want to push everyone around us to get better and be accepting of that when we feel that push from others. Uh, and so I'm looking for people who execs who really have demonstrated that they know how to grow people, the people they've previously managed maybe are even in bigger roles than they are now. And that those people say, oh, the time under that exec was really formative for me. Uh, the third is drive, which is delivering results, probably the most straightforward one. Uh, like, do they have a real history of delivering results, um, whatever those were in their function? And then the fourth is maybe a little more unusual, which is create clarity. And what I'm really looking for here is, does the exec have the ability to 
take the sort of ambiguous complexity that is the world that a startup exists in and are they able to synthesize it down into the absolutely essential things that must get done right now. And that ability to create clarity, I think, is really, really important as a company scales. It gets exponentially more difficult. And, you know, the the clarity and simplicity of the message needs to get shorter and shorter and shorter um, as, as a company grows. And and that's that's hard work. It's hard work to pick the few things that really, really matter. And so uh, I look for evidence of, of those four things. So then as the company grew, I mean, you were talking about company grow, uh, growth now. As the company grew, how did you also, let's say, transformed and, and grew yourself to really keep at the same pace? Yeah, I, I find that the most motivating times for me are when it becomes really clear that over the previous quarter or two that I have failed at something. Because that to me means that over the next quarter, I now understand the thing that I need to get better at. Um, and I think the, the thing that has been most consistent for me uh, along those dimensions is actually the creating clarity uh, value, which is the company grows by a factor of two, say, over the, over the course of a year, which means that the way that the level at which that clarity needs to be created and the simplicity of the message needs to be twice as clear and it needs to be half the length. Otherwise, the company simply can't ingest it fast enough. And uh, that to me, is, is a, has been a challenging pace to keep up with. And so I lean on the investors, I lean on the board, I lean on my co-founders, uh, I lean on um, those of my direct reports who are best at creating clarity to really help me figure out how to synthesize at that next level. And I know that next year, uh, the challenge is, is, is going to be twice as hard again. So um, that, to me, is, is a skill that I'm sort of constantly working on. So, for example, in that in that regard, I mean, you you mentioned the the word you know failing, right? So some 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 initiatives work, some initiatives don't work. But I guess for you, you know, more let's say uh, personally, what does that reflection process look like? Uh, I said, well, so we reflect on our company goals uh, every quarter. We reflect on the annual plan once a year. Uh, I also set uh, personal goals once a year and reflect on them quarterly. Uh, so I, that's probably most of the reflection process. I do find that vacation is sort of critically important for actually going in and reflecting on things. Uh, and then the last is uh, about once every two weeks, I, myself and my co-founders get, get dinner. Um, and uh, we, we work in different parts of the company now, but uh, that dinner is a really helpful time to sort of reflect on uh, what's working, what's not working, and what each of us can improve and do better. Um, and then, of course, performance reviews uh, is a really helpful time to get feedback from all my direct reports. And then I have a coach, uh, an executive coach, who uh, talks through whatever the challenge is of the week and helps me reflect on uh, on what's going well and what's not. And and I guess the um, the industry as a whole, where where segment is, how, how do you see the industry evolving over the next say, couple of years? Yeah, if you go back, you know, maybe twenty years the way that people interacted with their customers was almost entirely offline and it was almost entirely person to person, right? So you'd walk into say like a Nordstrom's and you'd actually talk to, you'd talk to someone, you'd talk to a sales rep effectively and they, they would help you. Uh, and they would, you know, have memory in their own head or in their, in their CRM of what your preferences were for clothing or, uh, and what you what you last bought, et cetera. And so that sort of in that offline world where you were really actually talking with someone, the CRM made sense as the customer data system of record, 
right? But what's happened over the last 20 years is that all of the channels by which we interact with customers have become digital and they've multiplied. So instead of just talking with someone in person, you're now talking with someone via email, via push notification, via digital ads, via a support desk, via a call center, via an ATM, via the mobile app, via the website. So you have this multiplication of all these channels that you're talking with customers on, and it's all digital and in many times automated as opposed to a person. And so the concept of a, of a CRM being the customer data system of record really doesn't make that much sense anymore. Like, sure, sales is one channel of the 20 I just mentioned, but um, it's just one of 20. And yeah. so I think the, the world that we see uh, ourselves and, and all of our customers moving towards is one where all of the data across all of their customer touch points is collected and synthesized into a, a moder modern customer data system of record. And, and that's what we're trying to build. Very nice. So I guess uh, now, I mean, you've, you've been at it for, for quite a while with the business, you know, everything started back in 2011. Uh, but I guess the, um, the, you know, so many lessons learned, so many things that you guys have done, so many experiences. I guess now if you had the, the chance to, to go back in time, Peter, and have a, a conversation with your younger self uh, and perhaps, you know, like give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? I think the most important thing to realize is that the world really doesn't care how you think it should work. The world has some problems and you have to listen, you have to listen and learn to listen very carefully to hear other people explain what their problems are, hear other businesses explain what their problems are. And if you go solve those, uh, they will reward you for it. Um, but you know, the world has its problems and it, it doesn't really care what you, what you think in terms of how it should operate. That's what I would tell myself. That's very powerful. Very powerful, Peter. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at R-E-I-N-P-K. Amazing. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.